So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Desmond, you had a fantastic interview, as I'm told, with the Poet Laureate for Parliament. He was sitting in the chair that you're sitting in, and I'm surprised that your butt is not on fire right now, because that's how he <laughs> left it when he, he left, was sitting left there. Left the studio in flames. I'm telling you, Just man. dropped that hot fire. No, it was legit. George Elliott Clark talked to us about everything from CRTC regulations to the history of Nova Scotian black and Acadian people, to the importance of having local poets across the country. And the most fun part about it is that George L.A. Clark is really, really engaged in anything that he's talking about. So you can feel the spirit and the excitement and the passion for what he does as a poet, as an educator, and, you know, as a really wonderful Canadian. I'm surprised they actually let him into Parliament. See, it's my conspiracy theory. Here's my hot take. Andre on Fuego. It's my hot take. <laughs> they don't let the truth tell us inside of Parliament. Actually, it's really funny, too, because you know who I ran into over the weekend? Who? Well, it's Black History Month, and the Toronto Black Film Festival was on, and there was a premiere for the movie Race, features about Jesse Owens. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting next to Selena Cesar Chavon, the MP from Whitby, Oshawa. And let me tell you, she is woke as hell. Here's what I'm starting to see. I'm starting to see a caliber of politician in Canada that I don't think I ever really saw before. From conversations that I've had with people like Michael Coteau, who's uh, an Ontario MPP, to Selena Cesar Chavon, to the conversations we've had with Ahmed Hussein, I'm noticing that there's a not just a high level of political awareness, but sociopolitical awareness. The fact that they can actually talk about themselves and their lived experience alongside what it means to be a Canadian and try to work out like, yes, I'm a person of color and I also happen to be into parliament. So... I have to represent multiple constituencies, not just the constituency that I belong to as far as geography, but the constituency that I belong to as far as the social hierarchy in Canada. I'm seeing those conversations be so much more open now. That's why it makes me really happy that somebody like George Elliott Clark does have the platform that he has because I think he's making space to have those conversations. Well, he did exactly that here. I mean, he talked about the conflict of how we all self-identify and of the multitude of Canadian blacknesses that exist right. today, right? Not the and blackness, but the blacknesses. The blacknesses. Darknesses. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, Andre. Really looking forward to it. Let's get into it. I'm Desmond Cole. And I'm Andre Demise. And this is Canada Land Commons. This episode of Canada Land Commons is brought to you by WarbyParker.com. Now, because Commons listeners are awesome... 
Warby Parker is offering you a free five-day home try-on to check out their glasses. That's five pairs. You got them for five days, 100% free. That gives you time to check them out, see how they look in the mirror, ask a couple of friends for advice. Now, glasses are really expensive, but at Warby Parker, prescription glasses start at just $95. When you place your order, you'll have the glasses within 10 business days. To get your home try-on today, go to warbyparkertrial.com forward slash commons. That's W-A-R-B-Y parkertrial.com forward slash commons. George Eliot Clark is about to be inaugurated as Canada's seventh poet laureate. He is also a writer, a university professor, a member of the Order of Canada, and a scholar of Black Canadian history. George Eliot Clark, I hear that you don't have a cellular telephone. That's right. I do not possess a cellular telephone. You are a king among men. <laughs> How, how do you how do you live like this? Mr. Cole, Desmond, thank you so much for making that point. I like to feel that way, too. Makes me feel just a little bit special. But I have to admit that I'm going to have to break down and accept a phone, a smartphone, uh, because of the position of being Parliamentary Poet Laureate. Um, in fact, uh, next week, I will be installed officially in mid-February as the nation's number seven. Parliamentary Poet Laureate, and along with that, I get a BlackBerry. Okay. With an email, a new email account. Congratulations. Well, not so fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of dreading that, because to come back to the earlier part of your original statement of being a king amongst men, I kind of like the fact that I was not instantly available. Mm-hmm. And that, although I admit it was a little bit inconvenient, I'd have to go find a payphone somewhere if I was really in dire needs of a phone. I have an office at the University of Toronto, which has a phone and subsidized long distance rates. <laughs> so that's a good place to go if I need to make a, a long distance call. And I use my phone card and my landline. The main reason why I was trying to go cellular free yeah. is because basically I have not personally, and I'm speaking not as poet laureate, but as a consumer. I just did not like the idea of paying the telephone company any more money than was absolutely necessary. Given the fact that up until recently, in my personal opinion as a private citizen, I have not felt that the CRTC has done a strict enough job of regulating essential telecommunications. This is the world's second largest country. Mm-hmm. We've got five and a half time zones, and a good chunk of that is remote and northerly. And the idea that we don't have a more easily affordable network of communications is problematic in my mind. We should have a telecommunication system that's geared to our country, not geared to the marketplace. Can you please tell us what the Poet Laureate is and what the Poet Laureate does? Quick history, early 19th century, the whole idea gets started in the mother country, in quotation marks, England. Yes. And I'm thinking of the romantic poets Wordsworth and Victorian poets like Tennyson get dubbed Poets Laureate. The idea develops that they have a responsibility to represent the monarch ceremonial occasions, matters of state and state visits and and so on, and to chronicle major events and celebrations, which could be everything from a monarch's birthday to celebrating a victory 
Mm-hmm. And it was a very important function because in those days, the British Empire really did straddle the globe. And there were lots of battles to commemorate and lots of affairs of state to be cognizant of and aware of. Anyway, fast forward. I've got to do more research about this, but I remember that Cyril Dabadeen, very fine poet, was Poet Laureate of Ottawa in the early 1990s. So it's possible that Ottawa was the first city to have this idea, the Poet Laureate. But then it spread so that the Library of Parliament began to have a Poet Laureate as of 2001. It's a two-year term, and it alternates between Anglophone and Francophone. So I'm number seven. And how do you see your role? I mean, are you commemorating some great battles that we've been in recently? Or what are you here to do as Poet Laureate? I'm tempted. But then again, I got to keep in mind that Canadians in general have a very sharp sense of satire and a very great sense of humor. And we love puns. Check the advertising along the highway, the billboards coming into or leaving Toronto on the Gardner. And most of those ads use puns, irony, and literacy. Our advertising is very literate Hmm. compared to, well, frankly, American advertising. Make of that what you will. But I don't mind thinking about the fact that we're just basically a far more literate population than the Americans. And given the current presidential contest for the Republican nomination in particular, uh, I think we can draw many conclusions from what I just said. But (laughs) in any event... I think it's really cool that the advertisers know this. We may not know it. Mm. I mean, the average person picking up that newspaper or looking at that ad may not realize that the advertisers know that we are a highly literate group of people and that we, in fact, want to read. We want to be teased into purchasing something. We don't want to be bludgeoned into it, which tends to be the American way. Buy this car. It's the best car. And the Canadian ads would be more like, Have you ever wanted to visit Italy? (laughs) Well, this Fiat, for the sake of argument, will get you there, even if you're only traveling around Toronto. (laughs) But then the ad might also show spots in Toronto that are based on or derived from Italian cultural influences. And the whole time you're being teased with images of Italy, but it's just to sell you a car. So what are you selling as Poet Laureate? (laughs) What are you trying to get us to buy? Poetry! I want you to buy poetry. I want you to be thinking poetry. I want you to be speaking poetry. I want you to be writing poetry. I want you to be realizing that poetry is an essential part of our lives Mm. every day. I've got to say right now, poetry will never die. People think that, oh, well, everything's going up on the internet these days. Everything is online. Print is dying. Nobody reads newspapers. Nobody buys books. And of course, these are great exaggerations. But no matter what form it takes, poetry will never disappear because it's an organic art. It's an art that's based on your pulse, the rhythm of the blood moving through your body, and, of course, thought. And you don't need anything but a brain to compose a poem. You don't even need to have the ability to speak. You can compose a poem in your head. Poetry is probably the most flexible and the cheapest art. This is important because you don't need anything else but your own body. You don't need any tool. You don't need any art supplies. You just have yourself, your brain, and the ability to invent words, put words together in your mind, speak them out, out loud or silently, memorize them. And that makes you an extremely powerful person. That makes you a king amongst men and a queen amongst women and an all-powerful deployer of the tongue. 
in all potential circumstances. Just to emphasize how important you think this is, you were quoted recently in uh, a piece in the Varsity, uh, University of Toronto newspaper here. You said that by July 1st, 2017, I would like there to be a program to be in place whereby Canadians will have sent to the Library of Parliament or their respected MPs, that's members of Parliament, lists of poets and poems that they believe represent their particular neighborhood, city, province. Tell us why you think that this is an important idea. First of all, it will ask members of Parliament to consider poetry and senators. Senators are also parliamentarians. And engage them with their citizenry, with the voters, to put it very vulgarly in a sense, around a cultural matter. I'm also asking them to recognize the saliency, the importance of culture for their constituents, for all of us, and the fact that poets are living Poets have lived, poets are being born, poets will live in future, who are going to be moved to comment on some aspect of their city, their town, their community, their neighborhood, their society, the country as a whole, the civilization that Canada is part of, and in ways and words that may in fact be very important for their brother and sister constituents, members of the constituency or the riding. And that way, plug parliament into poetry and the people who read poetry and like poetry. And I also think it's really important in terms of a kind of national unity. Because How so? If this project works the way I want it to, people should be able to click onto this map of Canada, find their, their writing, and then when they click on it, have two or three or four poets' faces pop up, along with references to poems that are important to that particular area and then have a bibliographical link to the actual location of that book or that magazine or journal so they can go and look up more work by that poet. Another important element of this is that poets haven't always lived in one place or it's seldom that the poet lives in one city in Canada his or her entire life. Hmm. So it may be possible, depending on the poet, that, and I'll use the late Earl Burney as an example. Earl Burney was born, if I remember right, in 1905, when Alberta was still the Northwest Territories. And everybody probably knows or has heard of Earl Burney's famous poem, David, which is set in the Rockies, right? So it might be possible if you're living in Cranmore, Alberta, you might say, well, you know, this poem really speaks to me. So I got to put Earl Burney in here with this poem. Someone in Vancouver might say, well, gee, Earl Burney wrote A Night Walk in Vancouver. That seems like a pretty good Vancouver poem from Vancouver Center or Vancouver East Side for crying out loud, and they pop it in in there. Or somebody say, well, you know, he was in Toronto too during the war, Second World War, and wrote a poem called Cabbage Town. So, you know, Cabbage Town has got to represent T-O, T-dot, the six, boom. Put that in there. So Earl Burney suddenly popping up three different places across the country. And people in different parts of the country can kind of claim him and his work to the specific places that they live. Exactly. Okay. And so and so it shows that the poets are national. Mm-hmm. We're not only regional. We're not only municipal. <laughs> no, the municipal is a great word. It's not only municipal, right? We're going nationwide on this. <laughs> nationwide. Nationwide. <laughs> municipal gone nationwide for crying out loud. And this is true for all the arts. Folks can be identified with one particular region or city, but at the same time, the work is national and then often, especially these days, international. Mm-hmm. Now we take it over worldwide after this. So right on. you say we when you talk about poets who have been mobile across the country. 
you live in Toronto now, but you are from Windsor, Nova Scotia, and you have a heritage being born in Windsor that is African-American and also Mi'kmaq, Indigenous Canadian. So you are a lover of history. How much of that is inspired by your own family's history? Wow, Desmond, that's a great question. How do I answer it pithily? Yes. How do I answer it succinctly? Well, you're the poet. I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> no, the history done in haiku, maybe. So I'm talking about <laughs> All right. Look, of course, it's inspired me greatly because I come from a long line of fighters and survivors and people who were jealous of their liberty and were craving equality and at the same time wanted to be able to live and enjoy their lives, no matter what kind of oppression, no matter what kind of restrictions they may have felt that the larger society was imposing or trying to impose on them. So I have that heritage, and I honor it deeply. I mean, you know, when I was growing up in Halifax, I'm a 1960 baby, I'm growing up in the 60s and 70s, and that was the time when the black power and black arts movements were coming into Halifax, coming into Nova Scotia from the U.S., and really had a dynamic impact on all youth at the time. That sounds like the most terrifying thing if I'm the Canadian government in the 1960s, oh, is yeah. having all these black radicals come up and start meeting with all the black folks in Nova Scotia. Come on. I mean, sincere, sincere, right on. But it was kind of nice to be at the center of attention for a little while, mm. you know, because of the threat of radicalism from blacks in Nova Scotia. And there was a small radical movement that was led by the great Rocky Jones, Dr. Burnley Rocky Jones, unfortunately he passed away 2013, but he was one of my mentors. His wife, Joan Jones, also a mentor. Walter Borden, actor, playwright, poet. A terrific mentor. These were all folks who were prime movers in this little ruckus and essential ruckus that we were having. Essential because why? Why did you guys feel this connection to radicalism that you saw in the United States? Because we saw that we were still oppressed or that people felt oppressed. I mean, as late as 1967, there was a law on the books of the town of Digby, Nova Scotia that said if you were black, you had to be out of town by sundown. That's centennial year, 1967, before they repealed that law. So Expo 67 was going on, welcoming everybody to come to Canada and celebrate our nation, and rightly so. And I was there. I went to Expo as a seven-year-old. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, here's Digby telling all black people, we don't want you here. You know, it's not the South. It's Nova Scotia. But here's a town saying we don't want black people here. The next year, 68, another town close to the town where I was born refused to bury a black girl. A girl who died of, I don't know, tuberculosis or something of that nature, they refused to bury her. White-only cemetery, 1968. And this is in a time when we're not supposed to have segregation, right? So it was because of those kinds of facts of life that young people in the 60s and 70s in Nova Scotia and in Toronto and in southwestern Ontario, southern Ontario, in Montreal, there was the famous Black Writers Gathering in Montreal in October 68 which brought together a lot of radical thinkers and writers in Montreal, which helped lead to the famous so-called computer party incident. Computer party incident. I know it as the Sir George Williams affair. Exactly. Which unfolded in 1970. 69 or 70. And we've talked about this a little bit on our program before. This was an incident that started with many black students, a lot of them from the Caribbean, who said that a teacher at Sir George William, which is now Concordia University, Concordia. that the teacher was discriminating against them, giving them 
poor marks on their labs and this is like a pre-med course that they had to take to get into medicine he was not excusing their absences and they were very clear that this was only happening to the black students but when they went to the school administration to complain the school didn't do anything and it led to a big uprising by students which ended with the takeover of a computer lab inside the school's building and Oh, that computer lab was set on fire while the students were inside of it protesting. Many of them were beaten up, arrested, sent back to the Caribbean and deported. It's quite a huge chapter in our history. That's right. And some of the uh, leaders of that particular event went on to do other really important things in terms of the Caribbean and in terms of Canada. And just before that, actually, the Black Panther Party sent two of its members to Halifax to basically meet with the black community and try to suggest ways that we could empower ourselves more in the face of longstanding barriers. What I need to say is this, that the history of racism in Nova Scotia goes right back to the founding of the province, because when the Acadians were ejected, it was to benefit New England and the South, because they no longer had as much land to go around anymore, because it was basically settled. The Eastern Seaboard was basically settled by the United States. So they knew there was this rich farmland in Nova Scotia that the Acadians had. So they maneuvered the British in order to make sure that the Americans might actually remain within the empire to remove the Acadians from Nova Scotia so they could come up and take the land. And when they did, as of 1760, they brought hundreds of slaves with them to Nova Scotia. So Nova Scotia really got its start as a British colony, as a slaveholding colony, and with slavery as an essential part of life in the province. And so anti-black notions have been around since then. It's not as prevalent as it used to be. Things are a lot better now. Let's talk about that, actually, because even though things are better, you and I are sitting here in a city where 3,000 people rallied in the streets after an American teenager who was killed, the officer who killed him was not charged. That's, of course, Mike Brown. And that's a year and a half ago. We have a Black Lives Matter movement in this city and chapters of it across this country. We have people talking about oppression, discrimination, anti-black racism across Canada today. So a lot has changed, but what do you see in the movements that are still boiling up and kind of gaining prevalence today? Well, I think it's great that citizens express their dissatisfaction because that's what democracy is all about. You have to be able to do that. And we are blessed in this nation to have the right, and our Constitution says we have the right, to protest whatever injustices we think are being perpetrated by whomever. And it's only through, and history proves, that it's only through citizen activism that we have improvements. And certainly the attention that protest has brought to the question of what might appear to be unlawful interactions between police and black youth in particular, has sent a message to elected government that they need to be protective of everybody's civil liberties, everybody's civil rights. And I'm not an expert in all this. I'm just somebody who reads the papers and listens to the news. But I did feel that the government of Ontario was listening 
in terms of saying that carding, this process of police stopping persons they feel might be able to help them in an investigation sometime in the future, who knows what kind of investigation, but sometime in the future, mm-hmm. it's heartening that some elected officials came to understand that this could be viewed as a violation of civil liberties. And if so, then it could lead to unfortunate legal action that might end up costing the taxpayers expenses that could have been avoided if unconstitutional practices had not been pursued. You talk about the citizenry mobilizing in order to make change happen. You actually worked at a much more institutionally direct level because you served as an assistant to Howard McCurdy for about four years. And Howard McCurdy is a second black member of parliament in Canada's history. He's also the founder of the National Black Coalition of Canada, which I want to talk about in a second. But what was it like working on Parliament Hill for this black activist in the 1980s and early 90s? Glorious. (laughs) Glorious. I was Howard's media relations person. I still know his CV. What a distinguished personage. I mean, he was one of the first black Canadian professors, if not the very first, and a scientist at that, professor of biology, University of Windsor, head of the department, published 45 scientific essays on microbiology, also a leader of the civil rights movement in southwestern Ontario, Chatham, Windsor, Amherstburg, in the late 50s into the 60s. Dr. Howard McCurdy was also involved in track and field. He was a coach. And he was also a founder, not only of the National Black Coalition of Canada, but of the Canadian Association of University Teachers, the CAUT. So every professor in Canada is a member of the CAUT, which exists as our national voice and lobbying voice, for that matter. When he was an NDP member of Parliament from 1984 to 93, and I worked for him 87 to 91, his critic portfolios included Human Rights International, Science and Technology, Youth and post-secondary education, and I know I'm leaving one out, but look it, I met the Dalai Lama, and I met the Dalai Lama because the Dalai Lama came to meet Howard. When he came because Howard is human rights critic international for the NDP, of course, spoke for Tibet and so on. So when the Dalai Lama came to visit Parliament, he came to our office. I got a picture with the Dalai Lama. Everybody grinning. Everybody (laughs) grinning, you know? And when Nelson Mandela was liberated in South Africa and was moving towards the presidency of that nation, who does the government of Canada choose as an opposition member of parliament to accompany the right honorable Charles Joseph Clark, Joe Clark, to South Africa to uh, sign some protocols uh, related to Canadian aid to de-apartheidizing South Africa? Howard. I got pictures of Howard with Nelson Mandela. And I was there in the House of Commons when Nelson Mandela came to speak. I was there when Gorbachev came to town for crying. The huge mob of people who filled the uh, shopping mall area down Spark Street in downtown Ottawa. You couldn't move. It was so jam-packed, right? Because everybody was trying to see this man who looked like he might be ending the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And who did end the Cold War. But... (laughs) I'll just say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Man... We mentioned the National Black Coalition of Canada. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? 
I believe it was founded in 69. And the idea was to bring together, and this is really crucial, and it's also a challenge. The great thing about Black Canada, African Canada, African Canadians, Black Canadians, is that we are multicultural. We are diverse. We are polyphonous. We got a whole bunch of accents. Polyphonous. Polyphonous. Many voices. We got a whole bunch of, of histories and cultures that we can call collectively our own. But at the same time, those differences also make us different and sometimes make it difficult for us to speak, especially to speak with one voice. Mm-hmm. Keeping in mind, we also speak different languages. And I'm thinking of the, the powerful Haitian community, especially, not to mention the Cote d'Ivoireans and the Senegalese and the Cameroonians and so on. They also speak English. And so the National Black Coalition of Canada was a first attempt to try to bring together those of us whose backgrounds are Jamaican or Trini or Bayesian or Senegalese or Cameroonian and Ghanaian and Nigerian, with those of us from the historical black communities, the native born with many generations behind us, the Scotians, the Scotianers, and so on. And then you move out west and people should know Salt Spring Island was first settled by black people who mainly came from California. Did not know that. <laughs> A lot of people in Salt Spring Island don't know that. But anyway, (laughs) all that to one side. I mean, black history is definitely national in the country. But at the same time, as the community has expanded and grown, thanks to the dropping of anti-black restrictions and immigration laws, Mm -hmm. and that relaxing of anti-black regulations only began in 1955. But in any event, we have the world's most diverse black community, the most multicultural black community on earth, and northern at that, we the north. This is great. And I think what this is going to mean, and I'm still thinking of the National Black Coalition of Canada, it was an effort to bring everybody together. It lasted roughly 10 years. I think by 1980, it had broken apart because of the fact that we have so many different opinions and orientations coming from so many different parts of the world with different heritages. And even the idea of what is blackness is a very open-ended question for black people in Canada. We may want to say, oh, yeah, well, we all know what it is to be black. But depending on where we may have originated, we may not see blackness as being any particular special quality. We may think that being British or being French is more important. Or we feel that being a particular religion, Anglican, is more important. Or being Rastafari Mm -hmm. is more important. And so there are no easy definitions of blackness available to Canadians either. And kind of in light of that, you have created a term to describe a specific subset of black and indigenous Canadians, which you call Africadian. Right. And I want to know, (laughs) first of all, I want to know who the Africadian people are and why you thought it was important to give them this name. I wanted to honor our ancestors who came and suffered and stayed and built and argued and protested and worked hard for very little remuneration. And I just feel that they came here and they built a culture and we should honor it and we should recognize it. What is that culture? It's partly African-American. It's partly Mi'kmaq indigenous. It's partly Caribbean. It's English. It's French, it's Christian, it's Baptist, it's African Methodist Episcopal. Let me say that again. (laughs) African Methodist Episcopal. I mean, just to say that, it's like you're playing basketball with your tongue. African Methodist Episcopal. Somebody could sound scary coming at you. 
African Methodist Episcopal. You know, what you going to do about it? <laughs> what you going to do about that? AME, Zion, AME, if you're crying a lot. I mean, some of these terms are just wonderful, just as language, right? So I wanted to honor those folks because they came, they built a church, the African United Baptist Association. They have a distinct way of speaking Ebonics or Black English that scholars recognize as African, Nova Scotian vernacular English. You know, we have our particular cuisine, and there's a new book just came out this year, African Nova Scotian Cookbook. But I like Africating because it's easy to say. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's connected to the historical name that Europeans gave to Nova Scotia, but a name that also is linked to Mi'kmaq people because Acadia is probably derived from Kadi, which means a lot of. So the actual literal meaning of Africadia is a place abounding in blacks. A place abounding in Africans, because that's what Kadi means, abounding in. So the etymology of the term, the roots of the term, say that Nova Scotia is also a black place. Much to the surprise of people who arrive and say, where all these black people come from? And why do they have that American accent? Well, it's easy. Mainland Nova Scotia was settled by Yanks. So we should all speak like Yanks for crying out loud. Stop <laughs> talking about my American accent. It's a Nova Scotian accent. <laughs> I'm really, really glad that you cleared the record up on that. You brought some poetry for us today, right? Desmond, I forgot my poetry book, but I have a poem I'm going to recite from memory, and then I have to go. I'm sorry, because you know parking tickets are easily collected in this city. <laughs> well, you know what? George Elliott Clark, the microphone and the studio are yours. Do your thing. All right. This is a poem I wrote in a laundromat in Amsterdam uh, 1985, 31 years ago, soon to be. And I was thinking about... Uh, Nova Scotia and my mother's homeland in Nova Scotia, which is three mile plains where I still own land, three quarters of an acre. And uh, this poem just came to me. And so here it is from memory. I can still see that soil crimsoned by butchered hog and imbrued with rye lie and homely spirituals everybody must know. Still dream of folks who broke or cracked like shale. Pushkin, who twisted his hands in boxing. Morocco, who ran girls like dogs and got stabbed. Lavinia, her teeth decayed to black stumps, her lovemaking still in demand, spitting black phlegm. Her pension after 20 towns. And Tooth, suckled on anger that no Baptist church could contain. Who let wrinkled Ely seed her moist womb when she was just 13. And the tyrant sun that reared from barbed wire spewed flame that charred the idiot crops to depression and hurt my granddaddy to bottle after bottle of sweet death. His dreams beaten to one tremendous pulp till his heart seized, choked, his love gave out. But beauty survived, secreted in freight trains snorting in their pins, in babes whose faces were cold black mirrors, and strange drummers who stroke your and banjos hummed, blind blues precise ornate rich needlepoint, and in my love's dark orient skin that smelled like orange peels and tasted like rum. Good God, I remember my creator in the old ways. I sit in taverns and stare at my fists. I net earth into bread, spell water into wine. Still nothing warms my wintry exile. Neither prayers nor fine love, neither votes nor hard drink. For nothing heals those saints felled in green beds by love or pain. A screw jammed in thick, straining wood. I better run. <laughs> yeah, literally. That's the program for today. 
Keep the conversation going on Twitter, on Facebook. Search for Canada Land Commons. The show is produced by Kevin Sexton and the music, as always, by the awesome Nathan Burley. You can find us online at canadalandshow.com. And if you go to canadalandshow.com, you can sign up for the newsletter, Not, Not sorry, sorry, by the amazing Vicky Machama. Please email us if you want to get in touch. It's desmond at canadalandshow.com. Or andre at canadalandshow.com. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And since you like this show, support it. Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The next episode of Shortcuts is going to be on Thursday, and the next episode of Canada Land Comments is on Tuesday. We out. You're in one room, but there are sliding walls, and then things pop out of the sliding walls to have a bathroom, to have a living room, to have a table. That's have you taking seen this? the whole pop-up thing too far. Well, it's real. It's <laughs> legit. And they're doing this in places like Japan and Hong Kong where there's like no more space to put people. They're like, okay, this is the next iteration. Pop-up bathroom. Exactly. You better not get drunk because <laughs> that's the wrong thing. pops up and you use it. It could be problematic. <laughs> this episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 